Baby, I'm a gangster too, and it takes me to tango. You don't wanna mess with me, mess with me. Baby, I'm a gangster too. <laughs> Trigger warning. This podcast may include explicit content that will take you out of your comfort zone and make you question reality. Listener's discretion is advised. Don't fuck with me, fellas! This ain't my first time at the rodeo. Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right down Santa Claus Lane. Dixon and Dixon and all his reindeers pulling on the reins. Bells are ringing, children singing, all is merry and bright. So hang your stockings and say your prayers, cause Santa Claus comes tonight. Welcome to the Christmas special episode. I wanted to do something exciting for all the listeners, and here we are. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is the grand finale of Season 2 of the Cosmic Peach Podcast, and I am beyond excited for Season 3 to kick off. Thanks again for your support over the last year, and I hope to continue bringing you the cosmic fire now and moving forward into the new year. So let's now recap on the best moments from 2023. Just kidding! Who has time for that bullshit? It's Christmas! And you have a life to live. So, without further ado, thank you all for being the best listeners on the planet. The smartest and most supportive listeners out there. And let's just jump right into the episode. All right, it's Christmas Day, and I got a little present for you. It's time to reopen a case, a very specific case. In my previous solo investigation of this case, I presented to you a theory, my thesis, if you will, and my research regarding a little girl known as Jumbenet Ramsey. Today I want to revisit this topic, but I also want to thank all the dedicated listeners of my show. As the Little Miss Christmas Ritual episode was ranked the number one most listened to episode of Cosmic Peach Podcast for 2023. The reason this is so absolutely important to me is because out of all the episodes, 
all the guest appearances and all the swap casts. The most listened to episode is a solo episode with only myself and the microphone. That is how I started this podcast and that is what I'm most fucking proud of. Yes, it is tremendously exhausting putting the research together for these types of episodes, but it is even more tremendously worth it when I see such a positive response. So today is a thank you for supporting my research and this show. I will reopen this Christmas case and bring you the cosmic fire once again as we recap and discover the dark occult nature of this murder. So let us begin. This refresh is not going to be exactly like the last installment because we covered a fuck ton of ground in the first one and there's no need beating a dead horse. I'm not going to argue about whether or not Jean-Benet Ramsey is a real person or not, so on so forth, because I believe I've done enough pontificating in the first episode. I do want to recap some of the basic info, but I also want to bring to light new information. But here's how we're going to start it. Let's take a journey back in time. It's Boulder, Colorado, December the 25th, 1996. Jean-Benet Ramsey. As I stated previously, in death, she looked more like the six-year-old child she was more than she ever had in life. Her lifeless body was found laying on the cold basement floor wrapped in a blanket. A strip of duct tape covered her mouth. Her right wrist, raised above her head, was loosely bound with a length of cord. The same type of cord was wrapped around her neck, with a broken paintbrush handle taken from the mother's art supplies and fashioned into a makeshift garrote. To investigators, her bindings look staged. Jean Benet was dressed in a sweatshirt that covered a long sleeve undershirt. White pajama bottoms covered her white panties, which an autopsy report later revealed were stained with blood. Inspection with a black light indicated that there was semen on both of Jean Benet's thighs but the medical examiner would make no mention of this in his official report. To some investigators, it looked as though she had been redressed after her death. Jean Benet had been sexually abused, severely beaten about the head, causing a massive skull fracture, and then strangled to death. Rigor mortis had fully set in, and police on the scene reported the smell of decomposition. She had undigested food in her stomach and small intestine, identified as pieces of pineapple. On the palm of her left hand was drawn a small red heart. Around her neck was a chain bearing a crucifix. On her wrist was a bracelet. Engraved on one side was her name, John Benet Ramsey, and on the other, the probable date of her death, December the 25th, 1996. 
Now, here we go. We're recapping. The previous evening, before the body is discovered, Jean Benet had attended a party at the home of family friends with her parents, John and Patsy, and her brother, Burke. The Ramsey family, here's the timeline now, returned home from this Christmas party at the family friends at approximately 9.30 p.m., by which time Jean Benet had fallen asleep. She was carried inside and put to bed, allegedly last seen alive around 10 p.m. Patsy Ramsey claims that she woke up the next morning sometime after 5 a.m. and headed down the back stairs, which were generally only used by those who were familiar with the house, where she found this ransom note that she read over and then entered JonBenet's room to find that she was missing. She places a frantic 911 call at 5.52 a.m. And it was later realized that the little brother Burke Ramsey's voice could be heard on the recording of that call. Although John and Patsy steadfastly maintained that Burke was not yet up from bed when the call was placed. That is the version of events that Patsy Ramsey has long held on to by her official account. However, as we discussed in the first installment of Little Miss Christmas Ritual, it is steaming horseshit and we all know it. But let's continue on. Boulder police arrive at the Ramsey home seven minutes after the call. Patsy's hysterical, John is pacing around, and of course, this was the second time in just three days that a 911 call had been placed from the Ramsey home. The first was on the night of December the 23rd, during a party attended by an estimated 100 guests to the Ramsey's home, drawn from the elite of Boulder society. And of course, the guest list for that party has never been made public, nor has the reason for the first 911 call, but I will let you use your imagination. So the first officers to arrive at the Ramsey's home were presented with the ransom note, which was two and a half handwritten pages of bizarre ass ramblings that were withheld from the press and the public for nine months and happened to be written in Patsy's hand. But we will get to that. The notes author demanded a ransom of exactly $118,000 in cash, which happened to be the exact amount of the Christmas bonus that John had just received. Coincidence, I'm sure. They claimed that they represented a small foreign faction, and they warned that if their demands were not met, Jean Benet would be decapitated. Ooh, the suspense is killing me. The Ramseys were also instructed to expect a telephone call that very morning between 8 and 10 a.m., but that call, of course, never came. Something I did not do last time was read you the ransom note. 
which I really should have done because it puts it into perspective. Not only does it match writing samples of Patsy's hand, it's written in the tone and context of the author not only being a female, but also a mother. I picked this clue up from a private investigator who has studied the ransom note at length, and it is astonishingly accurate in this analysis. So let me now read you the ransom note, and you can decide for yourself if this is a male or female, more specifically a mother. Here goes. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want to see her in 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account. $100,000 will be in $100 bills and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money, and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for a proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned. We are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny, as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It's up to you now, John. Victory. S-B-T-C. Let's take a look back now at this incredibly long, what I would compare to as one of those text messages you get from a crazy fucking ex-girlfriend who is trying to plead her case to you. I know because I've seen these type of text messages. They're the ones you get and you scroll through quickly down to the bottom and then you show your friends like, look what this crazy fucking bitch just sent me on my text message. This reeks of 
being a female. It's way too detailed. It's very emotional. And no fucking man who is straight in his orientation would write something like this. Especially not someone representing a small foreign faction. First off, they just leisurely sat around and wrote this handwritten ransom note in the living room of the Ramsey's home right after they've abducted the girl. Okay? And so let's take a look. Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. That reeks of a mother to me. Listen carefully. Giving instructions like he's a child. You must follow our instructions to the letter. You must follow our instructions. Okay? Another example of a mother talking to a child. Here's another one that caught me. Make sure that you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. Make sure you do the dishes when you get home from work. Make sure you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. This is a mother writing this. And who the fuck uses the word attache? Let's proceed. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. Who do you know who talks like this? Other than someone giving instructions to a kid. Someone who's used to being listened to as an adult parent type figure. Make sure you bring an adequate size attache. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown bag. And then reassuring at the same time as also a parent would do. I will call you between 8 and 10 tomorrow to instruct you. I advise you be rested. What kind of, what kind of kidnapper is this? Make sure you take a vitamin C. Make sure you get a full 8 hours. Make sure you bring an adequate size attache when you get home. Listen carefully. Must follow the instructions. Did Jean-Benet Ramsey get abducted by a fucking third grade school teacher? I'm sorry. Was Jean-Benet Ramsey abducted by my sixth grade lit teacher? Come on. This, again, is a blaring red flag. That this is not just some idiot who wanted to elicit money from the family. This is an inside job. Let's go on in the ransom note. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter. Let's stop right there. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter. We're already halfway through this ransom note. This is page two. Still, all the punctuation and all the eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed and we're making sure that I before E step after C and everything looks good. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter, okay, that we just abducted, okay, they don't particularly like you. So I advise you not to provoke them. It's beyond belief that the Ramseys, it's really not actually because we're going to get into it, but they've pulled 
the wool over everyone's eyes. It doesn't even take someone who has extensive training and background in forensic files and unsolved mysteries to see that no man wrote this note. No man wrote this note. Doesn't particularly like you? It, it, it feels like Mean Girls. Regina George abducted Jean Benet. Let's go on. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If we catch you putting your dirty socks under your bed one more time, your ass is grass. This is a mom talking. If we catch you, you better be rested. Listen carefully. Follow instructions. So... It goes on to say at the end, you stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. Don't try to grow a brain, John, you fucking dildo. Don't underestimate us either, John. Use that good old southern common sense of yours, John. It's up to you now, John. All right, Patsy. You did it, you former beauty queen, you. You pulled off a brilliant performance of a kidnapper. This isn't a Miss America pageant. You're trying to convince someone that you are a kidnapper who just abducted a little six-year-old beauty queen and you're trying to elicit money from a wealthy family, and you're sitting here trying to... It, it's basically like a burn note. You fucking fat bitch, you, John. Don't you dare try to act like you didn't hurt my feelings. That's why we stole your daughter. We're gonna be mean to her, and we don't like you, John. So listen up. Bring a good-sized bag to the bank, load it with the cash, and drop it when I say. That's what this sounds like. I don't know why I really should have, but I don't know why I didn't read this ransom note to you in the last installment. Because to me, it's a smoking gun. In this case, Patsy herself wrote this note. And for reasons that have never been adequately explained, the investigation was compromised from the very beginning. Officers inexplicably failed to secure the crime scene, allowing the family's pastor and a number of friends to come and go freely from the home. No effort was made to prevent contamination of any potential evidence. Detectives didn't even arrive to the crime scene until 8.10 a.m., over two hours after the first patrol officers arrived. It took another 12 hours for the coroner to arrive. And once he got there, he spent 10 minutes looking at Jean Benet in the crime scene and then loaded her up and hauled her off. And now to put things into perspective here, at around 10 a.m., the detectives allowed John Ramsey to leave the house, as I had stated in the previous episode, for over an hour, supposedly running uh, errands, had to pick up some dry cleaning, check the mail, 
make sure they got the sharp marks for, out of his underpants at the dry cleaners. Um, you name it. Stop by the porn store. Drop off a few VHS rentals to Blockbuster. Uh, you name it. He's just got to run some errands. And why he had such a sense of urgency at a time of family crisis is so fucking obvious to me. Why also did he choose to go alone when he had friends and family who were there to possibly accompany him? But no, he fucks off on his own for over, well over an hour and says he's got to run errands while they're, they're looking for his daughter. Okay. One of the most grievous and baffling errors, though, committed by the detectives, besides just letting people come and go freely from the home and then letting John out of their sight for well over an hour, is their failure to separate the Ramses for questioning. Even though detectives had Patsy alone for over an hour while John was dropping off tapes at the fucking blockbuster, no one apparently thought to question her. And just as baffling is the fact that there was no initial search of the house uh, by either the family or the police. When a detective on the scene finally suggested around 1 o'clock in the afternoon that it might be a good idea to search the house, it had been nearly 8 hours since the family first discovered John Bonet was missing. Seven hours since police arrived on the scene, and five hours since detectives have arrived. And yet, no one had the thought to search the home. Are we really supposed to believe that after finding this ransom note, the family immediately accepted that their beloved little Christmas princess had been taken from the house, and there was no reason at all to search for her? What parent would not search their home repeatedly in the desperate hope that somehow something had been overlooked during an earlier search? I would be like Sherlock motherfucking Holmes in that bitch, dusting for fingerprints, everything. As previously mentioned in the first installment, when it finally occurred to police that it might be a good idea to search the fucking crime scene, they assigned that task to the prime suspect, John Ramsey. And joining John was his good friend we met before, Fleet White, the oil company executive who had hosted the party the Ramseys attended the previous evening. And who the Ramseys placed a call to immediately after placing the call to 911. No biggie, I, I guess. Let's not look into Fleet White or that situation at all. Anyways, Ramsey and White were tasked with searching the crime scene and quickly headed to the basement, where they almost immediately found Jean Benet's body, not only demonstrating that no effort had previously been made to look for Jean Benet in the basement, but the amount of ease in which they found her and the ridiculousness of not having found her prior to this. Let me tell you what I imagine happened. Okay, let's, let's say I'm Fleet White right now. 
Hey, uh, let's let's go ahead and search the house. Um, oh, okay, yeah, me and John, yeah, let's go. Oh, we're supposed to start searching now? Damn. I, I legit have a luncheon at three. Damn. Well, let's let's make this short. Okay, come on, John. Let's go to the basement. Clippity cloppity. We're walking down the stairs. Okay, now we're looking. We're looking. We're looking. We're looking. We're looking. Let's flip this bucket over. Ah, oh, no decapitated body in there. Uh, let's throw some clothes out of this clothes basket all over the floor. Ooh, move some socks around. Uh, nobody in here. Okay. Now we're going to look in this corner over here near the open window with the uh, glass busted out and the small child-shaped mask underneath the blanket. Holy titty fuck! There she is, John! Ooh! Come on! White later claimed that he had checked the basement earlier and saw nothing out of the ordinary. His exact words. And you know why? Because let's just say the small child body under the blanket wasn't obvious. The window, they claim, the murderer came through had actually been broken for some time, y'all. And there was fucking cobwebs all over the broken glass. So yeah, that wouldn't be out of the ordinary since the window's been busted since 1992. Anyways, John Ramsey rushes over, picks up his lifeless daughter, and removes the tape from her mouth, according to him. Strangely, though, the autopsy report later made no mention of tape residue around Jean Benet's mouth, but John insists he removes duct tape from Jean Benet's mouth. But, uh, yeah, then he carried her upstairs and laid her on the floor. Patsy Ramsey collapses at the vision of her daughter in the state. And a detective then moved the corpse and covered it with a blanket. So this all happened within moments. Not an hour, not over the course of a few hours. In moments this happened. So within the space of just a few minutes, some of the most crucial evidence in the case was hopelessly contaminated. There was a lady, her name is Anne Louise Bardak. She wrote for Vanity Fair. She quoted one of the officer's recollections, actually, of this situation. And to John and Patsy's reaction to the discovery of Jean Benet's body. And it says, quote, What was interesting was when John brought the body upstairs, he never cried. But when he laid her down, he started to moan while peering around to see who was looking, end quote. Patsy, he said, quote, peered at him through splayed fingers, end quote, while making sobbing sounds. The officer described being haunted by the manner in which Patsy kept staring at him. He also noted that he never saw either of the Ramses attempt to comfort or console each other. That is, again, a smoking gun. Smoking gun, in this case. 
So the glaring inconsistencies of finding both a ransom note and the body of the purported kidnapping victim, coupled with what was viewed by many as inappropriate behavior by the Ramses, seems to indicate that the crime was something other than a botched kidnapping. And that's basic crime scene 101. The preponderance of the evidence did not support the idea that an intruder was to blame. No footprints were observed outside of the home, even though snow covered all of the fucking grounds. No signs of a forced entry. The ransom note was most likely originated from within the house. Within the house. The pages appeared to have been torn from the Ramsey's own legal pad and a pen was found in a cup in the kitchen that was most likely the writing instrument. No abductor is going to go through. And why place the pen back in the cup? Mm, maybe it's because she likes to keep a clean countertop. Excuse me, the abductor thought that it would be polite of them to put the pin back in the cup where they got it. Come the fuck on. Alright, so... According to some reports, the first page of the legal pad, which was still attached, contained what appeared to be a false start in writing the ransom note. Didn't like the, how it was going on the rough drafty, so they had to start over... Kind of slop their handwriting up some more. Make sure it was nice and incognito. Yeah, sure. So, the likely scenario that uh, we are asked to believe is that an intruder entered an occupied home seeking a victim to abduct. But he then inadvertently killed the intended victim. At which time he decided to hide the body in the basement assuming that it wouldn't be found. Then he searched the house for a pen and paper before composing both an unfinished draft and a final ransom note, which rambled on at some length and was very descriptive, capitals and punctuation double-checked and then made sure to sweep up any mud or debris from his snowy, muddy, melted fucking shoes, all without waking anyone. And then quickly surveyed the home to see if any previously broken windows were available to sneak out of, leaving no trace of his coming and going. What a sleuth, y'all. Not only that, but to keep it G. The room where the body was found was in an out-of-the-way area of the basement. Only a family member would have likely known of its existence. John Ramsey acknowledged that fact in a CNN interview. Quote, The room that we found her in is kind of a remote part of the basement. End quote. A casual guest would not know where that room is. Quote from Patsy. It's, you know, kind of out of the way, end quote. Despite that early acknowledgement by the Ramses themselves, the Ramses spin team later ferociously denied that the room would have been difficult to locate for someone other than a family member. But it was! 
this is the result of a botched up sloppy ass cover up for what really happened. And I think I told you what really happened in the last episode, but I'm going to hit you even harder with new evidence to support my thesis. So you may be wondering to yourself, is it just my opinion that the note was in Patsy's hand or that Patsy wrote it? No. Because actually, a dude named Steve Thomas, who was the lead detective on the case, concluded that Patsy wrote the ransom note. He contends that of the 74 suspects whose handwriting samples were reviewed by investigators, Patsy was the only one that could not be excluded as a suspect. He also accused her of deliberately changing some elements of her writing style after the murder in order to disguise her authorship of the note. Now, several days after the discovery of Jean Benet's body, the Ramsey family flew her remains to Atlanta, their former home, for the proper burial. Services were held on New Year's Eve, after which Jean Benet was laid to rest next to her half-sister Elizabeth, another of John Ramsey's daughters mentioned in the previous episode. And the following day, after the services, John and Patsy made their infamous appearance on CNN, even while steadfastly claiming to be too grief-stricken to talk to the police. Patsy was heavily sedated, took a little Zanny bar, and she had been heavily sedated since the day of the murder, along with the Looney Tune little brother, Burke. She later claimed that she was unable to remember anything that occurred during the weeks immediately following the discovery of the body. Wonder why. But this is when allegations of prior abuse of Jean Benet soon began to circulate in the media. Video footage of Jean Benet's pageant appearances was aired endlessly. Endlessly. And this is a whole part of it, in my opinion, a part of the ritual. But the footage offered no proof to the abuse allegations, if you will. But it did clearly demonstrate that the Ramses had marketed their daughter as some kind of hypersexualized woman child. And as I discussed before, the author Stephen Singular discovered this underground kitty porn circle where girls almost identically to the case of Jean Benet are featured in these pageant videos, quote unquote. And these pageant videos are sold on these dark websites, etc. To you can go and find them if you're in the right circles. And it's in this pageant world, this underground pageant world where there are extraordinarily young girls like Jean Benet, their hair's dyed, their teeth are capped, they have plastic surgery, they tape their little tiny boobies together to make it look like they have cleavage, they wear contacts like Jean Benet, and they enhance their features to make them appear more sexualized for their audience. The audience who is participating in buying the videos, the photos, etc., Singular also discovered that photographing these prepubescent beauty queens in risque poses is a routine business undertaken by some of the most 
highly regarded child photographers in the country. JonBenet Ramsey was just one in an estimated 250,000 girls who are a part of this billion dollar a year business that caters to the pedophilic tendencies of the adults who gravitate towards child beauty pageants every year. And I'm not talking about I went to go see my niece at a beauty pageant or I was in a beauty pageant when I was a kid and nothing weird happened to me. There is an underground network of disgusting ass pedophiles, okay? Where there is a dark pageant ring. A kitty porn pageant ring. There, It's fetishized. It's a fetish. Okay? But we covered all that last time. So, let's go back over the autopsy report. So, the autopsy report, which was released in a severely redacted form on February 14th. And then in full on August 13th made mention of chronic genital inflammation, foreign matter in the vagina, and epithelial erosion. A detective working the case swore in an affidavit that the coroner, John Mayer, told her that someone had definitely had sexual contact with Jean Benet. Dr. Robert Kirshner of the University of Chicago's pathology department noted that JonBenet's vaginal opening was twice what it is for a normal girl her age. He also stated that the, quote, genital injuries indicate penetration, but probably not by a penis, and are evidence of molestation that night, as well as previous molestation, end quote. Dr. Cyril Weck, one of the most respected forensic pathologists in the country, told an interviewer, quote, This to me is evidence of sexual abuse. I think any forensic gynecologist and forensic pathologist would agree with that. If she had been taken to a hospital emergency room and the doctors had seen the genital evidence, her father would have been arrested, end quote. Well, that's all I need to know, but let's continue. Then, of course, there was the pediatrician who had numerous opportunities to observe that evidence. As was widely reported, John Bonet had been taken to this pediatrician no fewer than 27 times in the previous three to four years. I mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The doctor claimed rather disingenuously, that that was a normal rate of visitation for a child her age. He also claimed that he had never seen, during any of those visits, any evidence of abuse. But it's contradicted by the forensic evidence. And I will take forensic evidence over some guy's opinion any day of the week. And the forensic evidence indicates chronic abuse. So I wonder how much he was paid to cover up the abuse for all those years. Speculation, but penny for thought. Now, he's not the only questionable medical professional in this case. A place called Cellmark Diagnostics in Germantown, Maryland, which is a CIA-linked forensic lab, that was also famous during the O.J. Simpson trial, by the way, 
was unable to return any conclusive findings from any of the biological materials it received on the case. Imagine that. But you know what else is odd? Since we're talking about the O.J. Simpson trial. A number of other O.J. players surfaced in this JonBenet Ramsey case as well. Hmm. I mean, from the beginning, when a gag order was placed on the officers working the case, there have been concerted efforts made to control the flow of information that the public has received about the murder of JonBenet Ramsey. And largely responsible for shaping the public perception of the case has been the law firm. And they were retained almost immediately by the Ramseys. And it was Haddon, Morgan, Mueller, George, Mackey, and Foreman. And the tentacles of Hal Haddon's firm, which was Haddon, Morgan, Mueller, George, Mackey, and Foreman, seemed to reach into every nook and cranny of the Ramsey case. Let's start with this. Alex Hunter, the man primarily responsible for prosecuting the JonBenet Ramsey murder case, had been Boulder's district attorney since 1972. And during his tenure, he developed a reputation for extremely lenient enforcement of drug laws, making the city a particularly friendly place for narcotic traffickers. Since 1969, Hunter had been a limited partner in a business enterprise with a lawyer named William Gray, who just happened to be John Ramsey's civil attorney. So, the man primarily responsible for prosecuting the JonBenet Ramsey case was in a limited partner business enterprise with the man who represented Jean Ramsey. <laughs> That's not crooked at all. But let's continue. This powerful firm had deep connections to the democratic power structure that controls state politics in Colorado. Hal Haddon was the manager of Gary Hart's successful U.S. Senate campaigns, as well as his unsuccessful presidential bid. Haddon also has close ties to District Attorney Alex Hunter and former Governors Roy Romer and Richard Lamb. A Los Angeles Times report from August 2003 describes his firm as having, quote, a long history of handling high-profile cases and getting charges either dismissed outright or dramatically reduced. In cases where clients have been found guilty, they have often been able to get sentences drastically cut, end quote. Now, the Times cites as an example the case of Rockwell International Corporation's Rocky Flats Nuclear Weapons Plant, which was raided by federal agents who discovered, quote, widespread and egregious environmental contamination, 
radioactive waste was being illegally dumped into rivers, fields, and released into the atmosphere, end quote. Despite the fact that the evidence against the company was overwhelming, no company officials were ever charged in the case, which was settled with Rockwell paying a nominal fine. In 1990, Haddon represented none other than journalist Hunter S. Thompson, who was facing sexual assault charges. The charges against Thompson were, you guessed it, dropped. Curiously, though, did you know that Hunter S. Thompson has been accused by witnesses in the Franklin scandal? Of being a producer of child snuff films? Yeah, that's right. Remember the episode we covered on Johnny Gosh and the Franklin cover-up, the Franklin case? Paul Benassi? Member? Yeah, it's all linked, motherfucker! And I'm gonna show you how. But let me not put the cart before the horse. Let's just say we're gonna circle back to this. So, dude... Patsy Ramsey was represented by these fucking Haddon partners, namely Patrick Furman and Patrick Burke. Burke was perhaps best known for having won acquittal for the white supremacist accused of killing Denver radio personality Alan Berg. John Ramsey was represented by partners Brian Morgan and Lee Foreman. Burke Ramsey was represented by yet another member of the Haddon team. So, the Boulder Police Department, led by Chief Tom Kobe, took the unusual step of being represented by who? A team of private practice attorneys. And who are these attorneys? Well, one of the three, Robert Miller, had recently teamed with Haddon on a civil suit. The other of the trio, Daniel Hoffman, had previously been defended in a malpractice suit by Haddon partner Lee Foreman, who is representing John Ramsey. So they're all represented by members of or members connected to this Haddon group. Keeping it in the family, you see? So in addition to the legal firepower, the Ramses also hired a professional fucking spokesman. None other than Washington spinmeister Patrick Corton, who had served in the Reagan administration as the consultant for the Office of Personal Management and as the chief spokesman, for the outrageously corrupt Ed Meese-run Justice Department. Also on Corton's resume were stints serving as mouthpieces for Iran-Contra conspirator Oliver North and for the pharmaceutical research murderers, <clears throat> excuse me, manufacturers of America. Another addition to the Ramsey Spin team was premier FBI profiler John Douglas. One of his former colleagues, Greg McCrary, was also approached to join the team, but he declined the offer after offering the opinion that 
the murder looked to him like a, quote, staged domestic homicide, end quote. So think about that. They hire FBI profiler John Douglas, tried to recruit Greg McCrary, who was one of his colleagues, but Greg took a look at the John Bonet Ramsey case and was like, I'm good on that. Looks like a staged domestic homicide, in my opinion. I am O. Okay, and denied to join the Ramsey's team. Also, on the Ramsey team were two private investigation firms who reportedly interviewed every witness approached by Boulder police. And rounding out the team was a retired investigator named Lou Smith, whose claim to fame was having solved the murder of Karen Grammer, the sister of actor and accused pedophile Kelsey Grammer. But what's interesting about this Smith guy is that Smith was brought out of retirement by District Attorney Hunter, ostensibly to assist in gathering evidence against the Ramses. Strangely enough, though, he resigned a year and a half later and went on to work for the Ramses. Come the fuck on! He was brought out of retirement by District Crooked Ass Dick Attorney Hunter to gather evidence against the Ramses, but then resigned a year and a half later and went to work for them. What the fuck? When he switched sides, he brought with him a full accounting of all of the state's evidence in the case. He brought it to the Ramses doorstep, which the Ramses needed access to all along. So when he switched sides, not only did he gather up all this evidence from the state, he took it to the Ramseys so they knew what they had on him. Come the fuck on. Was she a real person? I don't know. They seem to have went to a lot of fucking trouble to make this case real. A lot of money, a lot of corruption, a lot of dirty deeds here for a fucking CGI photograph. But anyways, I'm not getting into that. Okay, that's not all, folks. Boulder police loudly complained that attorney Hunter, who supposedly hired Lou to dig up dirt on the Ramses, yeah right, has actually repeatedly shared information with the Ramses, even going as far to supply the couple before they're being questioned by police with copies of the police reports and of their initial statements. Therefore, John and Patsy were able to ensure that their stories remain consistent with both the known facts and with their prior alibis. So, a lot of people talk about how consistent they remained over the years. The fuckbags memorized the police reports that were given to them by the man responsible for prosecuting them, District Attorney Hunter. Now, here's the silver lining. To their credit, it appears that at least some of the officers on the Boulder Police Force, which had a healthy distrust of District Attorney Hunter and his sidekick, Lou Smitty Boy, they actually attempted to honestly investigate this case. Their efforts were impeded, however, by not only the district attorney's office, but by the Denver Police Department and the FBI! And the FBI! 
local officials, the ones who weren't in on this in any way and were just trying to be good police officers and actually work this case, they resisted unsuccessfully the involvement of the district attorney's office and the FBI. But there's not really a lot you can do. If they're going to be a part of it, they're going to be a part of it. So in April 1997, Boulder police abruptly stopped sharing information with District Attorney Hunter's office. Shortly after that, the computer containing the Ramsey case files was hacked into by persons unknown. And that same month, John and Patsy Ramsey submitted to their first formal police interviews. Enough said, right? And actually, on the very same day that the computers were hacked, a man named James Michael Thomas, who worked for a private company that specialized in transporting corpses, stole two pages from the morgue book at the Boulder Community Hospital. Those two pages had recorded the arrival of John Bonet's body four months earlier. On May 21st, Thompson was charged with the theft of the pages. He was also charged with abuse of corpses. Those charges came from his macabre habit of grotesquely posing the corpses in his charge. Sick fucker! And on June 18th, The very same James Michael Thompson attempted to burn down the Ramsey home. But you know what's interesting about him trying to burn the Ramsey home down? Is that Patsy had reportedly expressed a desire that the house should be destroyed, along with all the evidence, right? And had vowed that she would never return to the home where Jean Benet was killed. Officials predictably announced that Thompson's actions had no connection to the murder of John Bonet. But maybe Mr. Thompson was given a few dollar bills to make all the evidence disappear. Including the log from the morgue. Ah, interesting. But you know... June also marked the beginning of the crumbling of the local political structure in Boulder, Colorado. City manager Tim Honey was the first casualty. Before long, a third of the city's council members had left office. The mayor had decided to move on, the head of the Chamber of Commerce had left office, and police chief Tom Kobe and police commander John Eller had both opted to step down, okay? In the book on this case by Stephen Singular, this is what he says, quote, Numerous powerful people had been in the Ramsey's home and had been exposed to John Bonet, end quote. Many of those powerful people were in the Ramsey home just two days before Jean Benet's death, on the night of that first 911 call. It is very unlikely 
that any of those people will ever be named from the guest list. But it is quite possible that some of them were these public officials who opted to step away from the limelight right after the tragedy. And they all were corrupt as fuck working with the district attorney's office to get these two fuckbags off. And what really happened to John Bonet on that fateful night in 1996? And why did the case become such a cause for conspiracy? After all, even in the late 90s, the killing of a child in this country was certainly not an uncommon occurrence. Nor was it normally an event deemed worthy of national media attention. A newspaper called Village Voice even reported in 1997 that the United States has per capita the highest rate of child homicide in the world. None of the world's people slaughter their children more frequently or more cavalierly than do Americans. And I fucking agree with that statement. So what then do people make of the JonBenet Ramsey case? The family, of course, would like you to believe it was nothing more than a badly botched kidnapping plot. But like me, most of you don't buy that brand of baloney. The kidnapping scenario was most likely conceived after the fact to cover up the intentional death of the child or maybe accidental. But the plan probably called for the body to be disposed of and the disappearance blamed on an unknown abductor. But for whatever reason, though, the body couldn't be disposed of. When it became apparent that a search would quickly yield John Bonet's remains, John Ramsey made sure that he was the one who made this discovery, thereby compromising the crime scene and nullifying any forensic evidence linking him to the body. Clever! None of that, of course, answers the question of why John Bonet was killed. I do think he was getting tips by the police officers that were corrupt and compromised on how to nullify and contaminate the crime scene for forensic evidence. I believe that 100%. I think they told him exactly what he needed to do, which is why it took them so long to say, let's start looking for the body. They were talking about what he needed to do, what was going to happen, who was going to represent him, and how it was going to go down. Anyways... And I would like to recap my previous deduction on what I believe to have happened. And I'm going to cut the shit here and get straight up honest with you. JonBenet was killed because of her involvement in a child pornography and prostitution ring that either one or both of the parents, I don't give a fuck, were involved in. Essentially, they were acting as pimps and selling JonBenet to the ring. And the truth, likely, is that both of the Ramseys were involved in pimping their daughter out to other pedophiles. The massive cover-up that has shrouded the investigation from day one is indicative of the type of systematic corruption that leads to these type of cases being routinely covered up. Such a far-reaching effort certainly reeks of government-level corruption. Rumors of child pornography have surrounded the case from the earliest days of the investigation. Police records indicate that warrants were sought to search the Ramsey home for pornographic materials, probably by the guys who weren't in on it. And 
The San Jose Mercury News reported that police investigators, quote, had a strong initial suspicion that someone in the family had an interest in child pornography. Three days after the girl's bludgeoned body was discovered in the basement of her family's upscale home, Boulder, Colorado police seized computers, computer disks, CD-ROMs, and videos, also still photography equipment, according to the search warrants, end quote. At least 150 videotapes were seized from the Ramsey home. It was also alleged that John Ramsey had been seen numerous times frequenting a seedy Denver porno shop. And no, I'm not saying that everybody who visits a seedy Denver porno shop is guilty of child pornography. But when you have a dead child who has a vaginal opening twice the size of a girl her age that shows chronic abuse, along with these pageantry videos, I'd say we got a connection. Now, in the tabloid press, it was reported that the computers at Access Graphics were loaded, loaded with child pornography. And... It is interesting to note that after the murder, Access Graphics added guards and greatly increased security at its headquarters. And remember, I told you that a California woman presented to Boulder Police through her therapist information that she claimed to have had about the John Bonet Ramsey case. The therapist was Mary Binkowski. And she spoke of a pedophile ring operating in the Boulder area. She identified her client of 10 years as a past victim of the ring, which she said had direct links to the Ramsey family. They were probably the fucking kingpins of this pedophile ring. She also said that her client had provided police with the names of of several people who had witnessed the murder of John Bonet. Binkowski also claimed that the witness had provided evidence of the ongoing abuse of other children. And the unidentified witness was interviewed by agents of the FBI. Shortly after that, she went into hiding, afraid for her life. So, instead of taking this information and evidence and investigating it, they threatened her fucking life. The Boulder Sheriff's Office portrayed the woman as a crazed loony bin, claiming that she had a history of making false reports. The woman, however, maintained that while she had indeed made previous reports, they were not false reports but rather uninvestigated reports. There is no indication that the leads she supplied on the Ramsey case were ever investigated as well as her previous reports. So how can they say that she's made false reports when none of the evidence that she has supplied was ever investigated? So could such a ring have existed in Boulder? And if so, could that have provided the hidden subtext of the John Benet Ramsey murder.
Conclusive evidence is hard to come by, but a few tantalizing bits and pieces have surfaced. I have previously mentioned Randy Simmons, who was considered to be the best, the most expensive child photographer in the Boulder area. But more than a few pageant mothers reported that Simmons had approached them about shooting nudes of their daughters. They declined the offer, okay? But how many pageant mothers consented to these offers? In June 1996, just months before JonBenet's death, Simmons took what were described as cover girl shots of the beauty queen, who on several occasions had been photographed with Daphne White, her best friend and the daughter of Fleet White. I mentioned this before, but just wanted to remind you of that. And just after JonBenet's death, Simmons abruptly left his wife, left his daughter, left Denver, and moved to a remote area of eastern Colorado. No one ever seemed to know why he had done this. He was said to be extremely distraught over the murder, my ass. He reportedly placed several frantic calls to friends, during which he expressed a profound fear for his life. After the death of JonBenet, after the murder, he has a profound <laughs> fear for his life. He also wrote an article for Stage Lines, which was a pageant newsletter, in which he claimed that he was being pursued by these paramilitary types. He also expressed concern to the newsletter's publisher about the possibility of someone releasing inappropriate photos of Jean Benet. Well, how the fuck did you get those, Randy? And just recapping the Wonderland raids that swept through a number of American cities, one Richard Bruce Thomas was arrested. He was a computer consultant living in Fort Collins, Colorado, about an hour's drive from the Ramsey home. Thomas was found shot to death in his home on September 5th, 1998. His death was ruled, of course, a suicide. So, Richard Bruce and Bruce Thomas was suicided. Now, that's very interesting. A man named James Parton was arrested on charges of distributing child pornography on the internet from his Columbus, Ohio home, which was also found to contain a photograph of JonBenet Ramsey. Parton was also the prime suspect in a 1983 disappearance of a 14-year-old girl from Idaho Springs, Colorado. And again, this dude, Stephen Singular, who discovered the underground kitty porn pageant ring, took some of these scraps of evidence that he had collected and presented them to none other than District Attorney Alex Hunter from the Ramsey investigation. And then he took him to Detective Sergeant Tom Wickman of the Boulder Police Department. And then he took them to Ellis Armistead, one of the Ramsey's private investigators. All three took his information, offered nothing in return, and all three 
chose not to investigate the leads that he had provided. Fuckers! I'm telling you, this is so involved and convoluted for something that would have just been a CGI photo. Like this, there's no way that this didn't actually happen. It's a sloppy cover-up of a grotesque murder of a child. And what could prove to be a key piece of evidence in the case has been largely ignored by the media and by various theories of the crime. The undigested food in JonBenet's stomach and small intestine, which again indicates that JonBenet had eaten fairly close to the proximity of her death. According to the Ramsey's version of events, Jean Benet had eaten earlier in the evening at the White's party, but she did not eat at home before she was put in bed. Forensic evidence says no. Uh, wrong. The existence of the largely undigested food matter has therefore never been explained. In fact, it has been almost entirely ignored by most conspiracy theorists until now, right? Although some have tried to explain it away with the theory that Jean Benet would be fed before killing her by her abductor, which is a fucking stupid ass theory because there was no abductor. But a more reasonable explanation for the undigested food is that Jean Benet was killed shortly after she was known to have last eaten. She was, to be more specific, killed before the Ramsey family returned home from the party they had been attending. Such a scenario would help to explain some of the other facts and persistent rumors that have surrounded the case as well. For example, it was mentioned previously that JonBenet's body, despite being in the cold confines of the basement of the Ramsey home, had decomposed to the point of emitting a noticeable odor. It is unlikely that decomposition would have advanced to that stage had JonBenet been killed between 10 p.m. when she was allegedly put to bed and 5 a.m. when her disappearance was allegedly discovered it does not match the forensic evidence some investigators believe that john benet's clothing was changed after her death the ramses have acknowledged that she was in fact changed before she was put to bed after the family had returned home from the party if she was already dead at the time then she was indeed redressed after the murder. It is interesting as well that in the Ramsey's own telling of the story, they accounted for the limp figure of John Benet to be carried from the car into the house upon the family's return home. In case any witness notice them bringing her body in. Some investigators also believe that some elements of the crime scene, particularly the ligatures, were staged. That is also consistent with the child having been killed somewhere else and then deposited in the basement. 
It is possible that the ligatures were added after the fact, when it became apparent it was not going to be able to dispose of the body, as we discussed earlier. It is also possible that the ligatures were an artifact of the party, necessarily loosened when the body was redressed and then retied. The claim by the, the patient of the psychiatrist that we talked about earlier that provided all this info that was never investigated, they said she was making false reports. So she claimed that there were numerous witnesses to the murder, which is also consistent with John Bonet being killed at the party that the, they were attending at the White's house. One of those witnesses, as we had mentioned in the previous episode, would have had to have been Burke, the little brother who some suspect witnessed or was even involved to some degree in the killing of John Bonet. That would explain the Ramsey family's efforts to shield the Looney Tune from the media and from inquisitive police. Have y'all seen the Dr. Phil interview? He's sitting there laughing and smiling. That's how they program your mind in these cults, in this religion. You torment and murdered your own sister when you were eight years old, bro. Sitting there laughing and smiling like, yeah, my sister's taking a dirt nap. <laughs> what? Come on! As a final note on the Ramsey case, John and Patsy have on occasion publicized the fact that a stun gun was possibly used to incapacitate John Bonet prior to her death. This is supposed to solidify the intruder theory, since the Ramseys claim that they never have ever owned a stun gun. However, as we know, one of the videotapes seized from their home included instructions on how to use, of all things, a stun gun, and she did appear to have stun gun marks all over her body. In her death as well as childhood photographs of her. Continuing chronic torture and abuse. And um, just a reminder, John Ramsey is the son of a World War II pilot who later served as the director of the Michigan Aeronautics Commission, where he was known as Czar Ramsey. John himself was a naval officer and pilot in the Philippines in the late 1960s, Laurel Canyon, anyone. And he later formed a company that he named Access Graphics. And that company later became a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin, one of the nation's largest military intelligence contractors. After the buyout, John served as the company's president and CEO. His vice president was Donald Paul, Patsy's father. Okay? And Donald Paul was a former Union Carbide engineer. And Patsy, of course, was a former beauty queen herself. Her mom had complete control of her. They described her as a little automaton. Um, the family in which Patsy came from, the Paw family, was described as being insular, like a closed society unto itself. Um... People hinted around that Patsy couldn't make her mind up for herself, that she had no original thoughts of her own. She was completely controlled by her mother her entire life. And then that uh, dominion was passed over to John, who exerted considerable influence over her as well. And I would 
place a considerable wager on the odds that Patsy herself was a childhood victim of this underground pageant circuit as well. Let's be real. And also what I find interesting is that in this research I'm presenting to you now, the work of David McGowan and Stephen Singular were crucial in tying all the pieces together. And how similar the conclusions are in their research is the most pinnacle part of this whole thing. Singular and McGowan both touch on Looney Tune Burke and why the family acted so oddly when it came to him. And their conclusion is that it's because Burke saw his sister getting killed by a mob of pedos at an Eyes Wide Shut party and they didn't want him to say anything. Or maybe he even participated. And I want to quickly address the theory that Looney Tune Burke was the one who had a freak accident and killed John Bonet. It would not account for the evidence found during the autopsy. And for those of you who were brainwashed by a certain documentary claiming it had to have been Looney Tune Burke, riddle me this. If it was a freak accident, why does John Bonet have fresh stun gun marks on her body? Sounds a little premeditated to me. And what nine-year-old knows their way around a stun gun? And that's not to mention the chronic genital inflammation and the foreign matter found in the vagina and the epithelial erosion of the vagina. You tell me how that makes sense for the little brother having a freak accident and knocking her over the head with a Tonka truck. What about the detective working the case that swore in an affidavit that the coroner, John Mayer, told her that someone had definitely had sexual contact with the child. And Dr. Robert Kirshner of the University of Chicago's pathology department, noticing that JonBenet's vaginal opening was twice what it was for a normal girl her age. And seeing evidence of molestation that night as well as previous molestation. Was that Burke too? Is he the devil incarnate? Is he Damien? Raping his sister and shit? Stun gunning her and shit? I don't think so. The dude couldn't even get through a Dr. Phil interview. Come on. To be completely honest with everyone, after researching the disappearance of Johnny Gosh and the Franklin case involving Paul Benassi and all his personalities and shit, listening to Paul Benassi's testimony and trying to wrap my mind around the atrocities that have occurred to innocent children that have been kidnapped and never seen again, I almost wonder if the Ramses weren't trying to pull off a staged Johnny Gosh type disappearance. There is a speculation that Johnny Gosh's father was receiving strange phone calls in the days leading up to his disappearance. And his father, always, without exception, went with him on his newspaper route apart from one day. One day. The day he was abducted. And then Paul Benassi claims to have been in the car. 
present on the day of Johnny Gosh abduction. And they used Johnny as one of these slave kids to use in a blackmail video. Could this be a less successful version of Johnny Gosh? The Eyes Wide Shut party is in full swing. Several high-ranking individuals from the elite of Boulder society are in attendance. Without question, someone is holding a camera. Perhaps Mr. Randy Simmons, who was considered to be the best and the most expensive child photographer in the Boulder area. Maybe it was him. Who may have attended this Eyes Wide Shut party? Well, we can be pretty damn certain based on the behavior from the district attorney, Alex Hunter, that his ass was yuletiding it the fuck up in there. But who else? One man who is known to have attended is Bill McReynolds, who played Santa Claus for the event. Recap! So, on December 26, 1974, exactly 22 years before the murder of John Bonet, Bill McReynolds' own daughter had been abducted, along with a friend, from the McReynolds' home, not far from Boulder. The girl was released unharmed after being forced to witness an assault on her friend, but there were no arrests made and no charges were ever filed. And not long after that, Bill's wife Janet wrote a screenplay that was entitled Hey Rube that concerns the abduction, torture, and murder of a young girl whose battered body is discovered lying on a cold basement floor. The Ramseys considered McReynolds one of their prime suspects along with 160 plus other people whose names appeared on their self-serving suspect list. But my question to you is that if the Ramseys were so close to Bill McReynolds, close enough for him to not only be invited, but to dress up as Santa, throwing back a couple eggnog shooters with the motherfucker, what are the odds that this little screwed up screenplay, Hey Ruby Slippers, excuse me, <clears throat> Hey Rube, may have inspired the cover-up, after they needed to stage the crime scene. Think about it. Maybe Bill gave them a little inspiration, knowingly or unknowingly. What's more interesting, considering I brought up Johnny Gosh, is that I mentioned earlier a little somebody named Hunter S. Thompson, who has been accused by witnesses in the Franklin case of being a producer of child snuff films, which was quickly swept under the rug. But how would you like to know he too wrote a column entitled Hey Rube? And these columns later became a book entitled Hey Rube, Blood Sport, The Bush Doctrine, in the downward spiral of dumbness. Now, this column that he wrote that turned into a book consisted of 83 articles split into three parts. The articles were first published on ESPN.com's 
uh, website. Um, and it contains articles from November 20th, 2000 to Octo October 13th, 2003. This was his final book. This was the final book Thompson published before his death in February 2005. Some articles are focused on subjects such as fear and loathing in America and love blooms in the Rockies. And that one actually deals with the 9-11 attacks and then Thompson's marriage. And uh, included in Hey Rube is a copy of a personal report written about Thompson during his time in the United States Air Force at the Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. And mentioned in this book also is Thompson's personal political statements and uh, quote-unquote honor roll, which he includes names of figures such as Johnny Depp, Fidel Castro, and Al Gore. But let's dive a little deeper now that we're tangenting. We're going to connect everything. Now, the father of gonzo journalism, Hunter S. Thompson, was a nasty, dark individual and, as I hope to show, was very much tied up in the inversion culture wars for the crime syndicate. He seemed to know things that he wished to reveal, especially as he got older. So, he just seemed to know things he shouldn't know. And according to the false official narrative, Thompson died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head at his self-described, quote, fortified compound. In quote, known as Owl Farm in Woody Creek, Colorado, at 5.42 p.m. on February 20th, 2005. Are you getting the chills yet? Well, if you haven't, just hang on. Thompson's son, Juan, daughter-in-law, Jennifer Winkle Thompson, and grandson, Will Thompson, were visiting for the weekend at the time of his suicide. Will and Jennifer were in the adjacent room when they heard the gunshot. The last word he was typing on his computer was counselor, indicating that he was in the middle of a sentence. Here's a quote from Hunter S. Thompson. The truth, when you finally chase it down, is almost always far worse than your darkest visions and fears, end quote. So could it have been a friendly fire on their part? You know, the, the weird pedos and shit, this underground crime syndicate. It's a friendly fire because T Hunter S. Thompson was supposed to be part of the posse, right? Why did he get suicided? Well, it's because no one, and I mean no one, Marilyn Monroe or not, is safe in this game. Paul William Roberts, a colonist at the Toronto Globe and Mail, stated, quote, Hunter telephoned me on February 19th, the night before his death. He sounded scared. It wasn't always easy to understand what he said, particularly over the phone. He mumbled. 
Yet when there was something he really wanted you to understand, you did. He'd been working on a story about the World Trade Center attacks and had stumbled across what he felt was hard evidence showing that the towers had been brought down not by the airplanes that flew into them, but by explosive charges set off in their foundations. He thought someone was out to stop him from publishing it. They're going to make it look like a suicide, he said. I know how these bastards think, end quote. Hunter also stated, quote, If I'd written all the truth I knew for the past 10 years, about 600 people, including me, would be rotting in prison cells from Rio to Seattle today. Absolute truth is a very rare and dangerous commodity in the context of a professional journalist, end quote. Despite his life of depravity, it was, I guess, 9-11 <laughs> that was the bridge too far for Thompson. He said President Bush had taken the country in two years from a prosperous nation at peace to a broken nation at war. And he wrote, you could not take this case, accusing bin Laden of 9-11, to court and win, end quote. But besides 9-11, he was working on the White House reporter Jeff Gannon scandal, which was tied to the Franklin Callboy pedo ring, which he himself was directly involved in. Paul Benassi, as I was mentioning earlier, testified in court proceedings that he helped kidnap Johnny Gosh in 1982, in that in July of 1984, Paul Benassi was forced to participate in an orgy at Bohemian Grove, where a young boy was brutally, let me, okay, let's back up. Trigger warning, if extremely explicit content related to children unsettles you, although you are listening to the JonBenet Ramsey episode, please skip five seconds ahead in the episode. Resuming. Paul Benassi testified in court proceedings that he helped kidnap Johnny Gosh in 1982, in that in 1984 July, he was forced to participate in an orgy at Bohemian Grove, where a young boy was brutally raped, brutally sodomized, repeatedly, and then murdered. Benassi said that the killing was filmed by, you guessed it, Hunter S. Thompson who had joined their private jet flight to the West Coast in Las Vegas. And a dude named Rusty Nelson was inside the Franklin operation and believes Thompson was a loose end that had to be dealt with. Now, Thompson wrote on page three under the heading, The New Dumb, in the book Hey Rube. This is what he says, quote, The autumn months are never a calm time in America. There is always a rash of kidnappings and abductions of school children in the football months. Preteens of both sexes are traditionally seized and grabbed off the streets by gangs of organized perverts who traditionally give them as Christmas gifts to each other to be personal sex slaves and playthings. End quote. 
Let me read that again, assholes. Quote, The autumn months are never a calm time in America. There is always a rash of kidnappings and abductions of school children in the football months. Preteens of both sexes are traditionally seized and grabbed off the streets by gangs of organized perverts who traditionally give them as Christmas gifts to each other to be personal sex slaves and playthings, end quote. You may not think that this could reach you, that this is so large that something on this scale could reach you in your neighborhood, but I promise you it's been going on for a long time. And these disappearance of children who were never seen again, taken in the blink of an eye, and who did it? I'm telling you, this is, this is part of the cult. So in John DeCamp's reporting of events in the Franklin cover-up, he writes on pages 326 and 328 of his book, Paul Benassi, while at Bohemian Grove, claims that he and another boy were forced to perform sex acts with and to consume parts of a child whom they had watched being murdered by men in hooded robes. The body was to be disposed of by the men with the hoods, end quote. I'm not going to read that again because it's really sickening. But DeCamp went on to say that Benassi also claimed that a, quote, snuff film was made of these events. The shocker is that the man at the party who had picked him up in Las Vegas and who had filmed the events was identified by Benassi as Hunter Thompson. But it doesn't just stop with Paul Benassi saying this stuff about Hunter Thompson. Thompson's secretary, Nicole Brown, wrote that Thompson kicked her out of the house for refusing to watch a so-called snuff film. She said for weeks he played a tape recording of a jackrabbit screaming in a trap. He fetishized being abusive to pets and animals and liked to drive at high speeds, narrowly averting cattle on rural roads near his residence. And that comes from Nicole Brown, previous secretary of Hunter Thompson. What a psycho piece of fucking shitbag. Now, photographer Russell Nelson claimed that Thompson offered him $100,000 to shoot a snuff film. Another man named John Todd spoke up about going to Thompson's home in Aspen, Colorado for a human sacrifice. I'm not being theatrical here. What's going on in Colorado, by the way? So... John DeCamp, who exposed the Franklin scandal, also spoke with the one and only Alex Jones about Thompson's involvement with a snuff film in California's Bohemian Grove. Watching a reading Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is enough to convince anyone of the adrenochrome junkie's guilt, in my opinion. But I believe based on these testimonies and the research I've done, this story of John Bonet 
fits the mold of the Christmas Eyes Wide Shut party gone wrong and a horribly botched up cover job to follow. I don't know if you want to go back and revisit this episode, but I, myself, have interviewed a survivor, Dr. Julia Engel, who was there, participated in the snuff films, and witnessed firsthand these gruesome rituals. She spoke about the absolute importance of Christmas for the Satanist, and Hunter S. Thompson did as well. Should I read the quote again? Quote, there is always a rash of kidnappings and abductions of school children in the football months. Preteens of both sexes are traditionally seized and grabbed off the streets by gangs of organized perverts who traditionally give them as Christmas gifts to each other to be personal sex slaves and playthings. End quote. There is a reason why Stanley Kubrick stressed the Christmas season in Eyes Wide Shut. There are so many people or fans, rather, of Hunter S. Thompson, including my brother, who will legitimately fight to defend him. And it's like, dude, let's say, preposterously, that he had nothing to do with the snuff films or Paul Benassi. He definitely fetishized animal brutality. His assistant documented in a statement his enjoyment of torturing animals. Guess what? If you hurt animals, there is a special place in the hottest, fiery pit in the lake of fucking fire for you. Someone who hurts animals should be fisted with hot sauce in their fucking anus hole for the rest of eternity. But anyways, there's too many pieces to the puzzle coming together for me to even second guess that he was a part of this. I have watched Paul Benassi's deposition i have watched paul benassi's many many interviews the guy is telling the truth if you want to watch them for yourself they were some of the first videos i ever posted on patreon go go watch them go watch them for yourself look at the guy he looks like a nightmare Big black circles under his eyes. He looks like he has been to the seventh level of hell and returned. I've watched them all. I've heard them all. I've put my own research to the test. And time and time again, I come up with the same conclusions. Take this episode for what you will. Believe me, don't believe me, whatever. This is my recap and conclusion for the Little Miss Christmas Ritual John Benet Ramsey Part 2, if you will. The more I dig into this case, the more that I find. And, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me why I continue to do the podcast. You know, it's so dark and depressing and it gets to you and it starts weighing down on you and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people on the actual opposite side will say, how can you think that everything is so demonic and satanic and it could just be something that's absolutely unrelated or it just happened to be a fluke accident or whatever? 
I don't care if you subscribe to a specific religion. I know what I believe and I know what I have found to be true for myself. And all I can do for each and every one of you is hope that you find these episodes informational. I hope they open your mind. I hope they spark the fire within you to continue to look for your own answers because there is so much out there that is still yet to be discovered. And, um, you know, a lot of things frustrate me when I talk to people about this podcast, but at the end of the day, I am completely dedicated to bringing the truth the best way I know how to each and every one of you. And I hope that you, oddly as it sounds, enjoyed this episode. I know it's a hard episode to listen to, but I hope you got something out of it. I hope that it was the conclusion you were looking for for the JonBenet Ramsey case. Of course, you can go back and listen to the first episode for another even more completely different view on it. I think you can mix both of these episodes together to really get the full view of what's going on here. And um, I hope you all had a beautiful, wonderful Christmas and enjoyed lots of food and love from your family and friends. I hope you got all of the presents you wanted. And uh, 2024 is going to be absolutely incredible. There's going to be a lot of changes coming to the podcast. I think you're going to love all of them. And, um, you know, Things in life need a certain balance, I think. That you listen to an episode like this, it gets you a little disheartened, maybe gets you a little black pilled. There's no hope left in the world. But then you listen to another one of the episodes, it's a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more comedic relief, kind of takes you out of the zone. Maybe you listen to a ghost episode or a true crime episode. And in the end, it's all about finding that balance and remaining hopeful. And you can't help but to be hopeful when you're feeling love from your family. So that's all I could hope for you for Christmas this year is you just feel loved and you feel on fire this year for 2024. Now, think of it like this. This is my Forrest Gumpism, if you will. When you eat a bowl of mini wheats, you got to have the perfect amount of milk to wheat ratio. Okay, let's talk about that. You put too much milk, you got soggy wheats, and then all of the icings melted off your wheat, and then you don't want to eat the wheat because it's a soggy piece of shit at that point. You don't put enough milk, you choke to death on a fragment of the wheat thin itself. So you have to find the perfect wheat to milk ratio, and that's what I hope to do here on my podcast is give you a nice mix of paranormal, true crime, conspiracy theory, comedy, uh, horror movies, you name it. And thank you so much for supporting the show as usual. I hope you're enjoying the, the milk to wheat ratio, if you will. And until next time, thank you all so much for listening. Of course, check out Room 237. That's the Cosmic Peach Patreon to watch the Paul Benassi deposition and interviews as well as so much more bonus content and uh, behind the scenes features. With that being said, Merry Christmas. Thank you all so much for listening and I will catch you on the next one.